Welcome to Guilty as Charged, the law behind the crimes. Exploring law and public policy relevant to criminal law here in Arizona, where nothing is out of bounds and all perspectives are considered. All right, welcome to our another episode of our podcast. We will be focusing, as always, on criminal law here in Arizona. Specifically, we're going to be dealing with the topic of juror strikes or lack thereof. As we all know, there have been rule changes here in Arizona related to this. But if you have any good ideas for future topics, please reach out to me. And you can do that through Twitter or through Facebook or, you know, if you people that, that we know in common or through email. Love to discuss any issues that you're aware of that would be of interest to people in the public policy or legal fields related to criminal law. We would remind everybody that the views expressed today are our own. They're not related or espoused or controlled by any employer, client, or any other entity associated with either Matt or I. Our guest today is Matt Elias. Excited to have him on. He has been a prosecutor for several years here in Arizona for a couple different counties. We're going to be talking about juror strikes today. And he was on a committee that recommended that the Supreme Court make some of these rule changes. So, Matt, you want to? Is there anything you want to add for your introduction? Well, no, I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be invited, and um, I really appreciate this opportunity to participate and have a conversation with with you, Jake. You and I have been friends for a long time now. We work together. While we often disagree, we've always disagreed in a positive way and I look forward to our conversation today and uh, this is a very interesting topic and I think that we should have a lot to talk about today. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we it has been some of our discussions have gone into wide ranges of, of different fields, whether it's sports or politics or legal issues. Always fun to to get your opinion on some of those. So tell us a little bit about juror strikes and, and maybe we can start with just a little bit of background what was do you think is the primary concern or what was the primary reason that the committee was formed or that the supreme court ultimately decided to make a change here well the committee that you're talking about was formed in march of 2020 right right before obviously the world changed with the covid 19 pandemic but the committee members were chosen right before then in the first meeting and all our subsequent meetings were all virtual and, and happened shortly after the committee was formed in March of 2020. The committee met for about a year and a half, close to a year and a half. The initial charge of the committee, and, and the committee was was set up and, and uh, the members were appointed by the Arizona Supreme Court. And the committee was the juror task force on a wide variety of issues. It wasn't just peremptory challenges, but... That sort of became one of the main issues that um, we dealt with. But the task force initially was on the Arizona Supreme Court task force on jury data collection policies and procedures. And it was primarily designed to come up with recommendations for the Arizona Supreme Court on how to increase juror participation and lead to an overall greater fairness in the Arizona justice system as a whole. So that was... Matt, if I can ask real quick, I know this isn't our topic today, but I've just been reading the news over the last two or three days that the Supreme Court has increased the amount that they're going to pay jurors. I think they increased the maximum amount that they could get up to maybe $300 a day. 
just curious, you know, was that anything that you guys discussed or is that at all related to this committee or, or was that not part of it? That, that was part of it. That was actually one of the main focuses of the committee. And so when we initially got together and started our virtual meetings, we broke the committee up into three basic subgroups. One was the ways in which jurors are summoned for jury service. Another was on juror participation in general. And a third was on juror pay, juror compensation. And what the committee was trying to do from those three different avenues was come up with recommendations to the Supreme Court about how to increase juror participation. And I was on the juror pay subgroup, and I was one of the individuals that was involved in changing the way in which juror pay is done in Arizona. Prior to the uh, change in the law that you just referenced, jurors in Arizona were getting paid $12 a day. Now, for a juror in just about any county in Arizona, that's not even going to cover lunch, let alone gas to drive down there, parking, if they don't provide free parking, lost wages, all those different things. Well, and, I'm pretty sure they can get a pretty decent meal at Taco Bell. So, And unfortunately, that, in my opinion, led to barriers to service for some jurors that couldn't take time off work and created other hardships from a financial standpoint. And also, in we, we looked at how jurors are compensated throughout the country, and unfortunately, Arizona was at the bottom when it came to, to juror pay. And so the one of the recommendations that was initially provided by the subgroup was to increase juror pay to approximately $50 a day, which would put Arizona about in the middle of all the states in the country in terms of juror compensation. And then that was later amended to four times the minimum wage, which I thought was an excellent change because it ties it to minimum wage. So anytime minimum wage goes up, then correspondingly, juror pay is going to go up as well. And so for those of us that have done jury trials, we, we've always had jurors that would talk about a financial hardship and not being able to miss work and yeah. those types of things. And I think that this is a, a great change. And I'm very happy that the Supreme Court adopted the recommendation of the jury task force and increased juror pay to make things easier for some people to serve on juries. One of the first questions I had when I saw it was, where does this money actually come from? I mean, obviously the Supreme Court has rulemaking authority over you know courts and juries. They obviously don't have a way to you know raise funds. They can't tax. Or am I wrong there? Is where where do they get the monies from? There are different funding mechanisms. There are obviously court fines that people pay when they're convicted of crimes. There are different filing fees, and there is also allocations of money from the legislature to the courts for court operations. And prior to the, the change in the rule, there was the Arizona lengthy trial fund, which kicked in after four days and allowed people to apply for lost compensation up to $300 a day. So that's still in effect. The change just makes it so that fund, which was already in place, is available to people rather than after four days, just immediately. And so rather than the, the floor being $12 a day, now the floor is four times the minimum wage for everybody. That, that includes people that are retired. That includes people that are unemployed. That includes students 
And so the funding mechanism is the Arizona Lengthy Trial Fund and then the other court funding allocations as well. Gotcha. Well, one more question on this, and then we we really will turn to our main topic, which is the the strikes. But you said a couple times that it was four times the minimum wage. I assume we're still talking daily, not it's not like four times the minimum wage that they're getting every hour, like the minimum wage would be. Right. It's just daily. So okay. it's so right now we're like a little under thirteen dollars, right around thirteen dollars. Right. So, so it's approximately fifty dollars a day, rather than when it in the past when it was just twelve dollars a day for the first four days for everybody. Yeah. So now it's, a, right, it's not hourly. It's four times the minimum wage for the day. So it's a, a, around $50 a day is the floor now. Okay. And it can go up to $300 a day if people are able to provide documentation that they would have been paid that amount of money and they are also not getting paid that due to their jury service. Mm-hmm. Well, now they can do something slightly better than Taco Bell with their $50 for their day. So now, now talking, now turning to back to the, that committee and maybe getting more towards the strikes, but I didn't hear any of the three different, I don't know how you divide it up. You, you said the committee was divided up into three different like subgroups and you're right. None of the subgroups were specifically focused on peremptory challenges because the chair of the task force wanted the issue of peremptories to be handled by the entire task force. So we all had our subgroups that we worked on. And then we all worked collectively on the peremptory challenge. And that was added in based on two competing rule change petitions that had been submitted. The first was a proposal from the State Bar's Batson Working Group. This proposal was based on change in the law in the state of Washington, General Rule 37, that in Washington they decided to preserve peremptory challenges but they broadened the Batson rule, making Batson challenges easier and adding other procedural provisions. So it was it's commonly referred to as something called Batson Plus. And so that was one of the rule well, petitions. And Matt, before we, we go on, maybe since you mentioned Batson a few times, pretty sure that most people listening are probably somewhat familiar with Batson, but can you give like a brief history of Batson, what happened there and then why we call these Batson challenges? Sure. Batson, when we say Batson challenges, uh, we're referring to a United States Supreme Court case from 1986 called Batson versus Kentucky, which basically Supreme Court struck down the use of peremptory challenges on the basis of racial discrimination. And so what, in the wake of Batson, what it created was if a, if an attorney struck a potential juror using a peremptory challenge and the opposing party considered there to be a racial motivation for that strike, the challenging party would make what's called a Batson challenge. So they would make a Batson challenge to the court, and they'd have to make a prima facie showing to the court that there was a racial strike involved in the the challenge. And then the party that... that Matt, is that typically done... Is that typically done through statistics? Is that just like there's four... of minority group x on the jury and the other party struck all of them or or how is that normally done well it's it's no it's specific for juror each individual juror so if there were say four minority jurors on a on a panel and one attorney struck all four then the opposing attorney would have to make four separate bats and challenges okay so they'd have to show that make the prima facie showing that there was a racial strike 
and then the party that made the strike would then have to provide the court a race-neutral, valid race-neutral reason for the strike. And then it would be up to the court to sort of weigh whether or not the race-neutral strike was valid in the court's view. And unfortunately, this created a significant amount of litigation and statistically still showed that there were a significant number of strikes based on race in Arizona and throughout other parts of the country. And so the Batson Plus was an attempt to make it more difficult for the party that made the strike to prevent to, to present a race neutral reason because under Batson it could be any reason whatsoever. Well, I, I prospective attorney could say I didn't like the color of that person's shirt or I didn't like the way that prospective juror answered this question or that question. And the Batson Plus petition was designed to make it more difficult for a for an attorney to overcome a Batson challenge. So that was that was one of the petitions. The other petition was proposed by Judge Swan and Judge McMurdy from the Arizona Court of Appeals, and that was a proposal to eliminate peremptory challenges for all cases in Arizona. Okay. And so the committee evaluated both petitions and debated them and at length over multiple different meetings. And it was an ongoing conversation. Before the committee started hearing this, did, had they already, were, were comments presented to those two rule changes, the one from the bar and the one from the two appellate court judges? Yes. Those petitions have been posted on the Arizona Supreme Court website and were open to comments the entire time. Do you remember, I know I'm, I'm putting you on the spot to remember some of these things, but do you remember if there was any notable organizations on one side or the other? I can't were there any... remember specifically. I think that there were some prosecute, prosecuting agencies that were opposed to the elimination of peremptory strikes and some other trial lawyer groups that were opposed to eliminating peremptories as well, but I can't remember specifically. Okay, did... Anything like the ACLU weigh in in any way? I don't remember. Okay, sorry. I didn't, didn't want me to put you on the spot. But so keep going as you guys discussed it. What kind of what were some of the things that you discussed? It was an ongoing conversation in terms of viewing it in the lens of how can we make the justice system and the jury trial system in Arizona more fair, more equitable, but also to increase juror participation as well. Mm -hmm. And those considerations played into it, and the the committee eventually voted 12 to 4 in favor of the petition to eliminate peremptory challenges. Now, the it's important to keep in mind that the task force was set up by the Arizona Supreme Court to make recommendations to the Arizona Supreme Court. The task force itself was not making rules yeah. or not in any way changing the rules. It was because the rulemaking authority is always held within the Supreme Court. That is correct. So the Arizona legislature has delegated absolute rulemaking authority to the Arizona Supreme Court. And but, so then later on, after the task force had made recommendations on peremptories and then juror pay and juror notices and other recommendations as well, then the Arizona Supreme Court voted to eliminate peremptory challenges in Arizona in all cases. 
effective January 1st of 2022. Was there a vote on the state bars proposal? I don't believe so. I I think that because the state bars proposal of Batson Plus was only going to be necessary if you kept peremptories. Without peremptories, you don't need Batson Plus. Okay, so because it kind of went farther, so to speak, than what you ultimately voted on, there was no need to vote on that one? Correct. Gotcha. Okay, and so so that started in January of this year then, and are, is it too early to kind of assess how it's been going, or, or what are what have people been saying about the results so far? Well, there is some some feedback that has been trickling in, some of the updated information that I've received from the Maricopa County Superior Court is that since January 1st of 2022, there have been 68 civil jury trials and approximately 110 criminal jury trials so far this year. So 268, or excuse me, 278 total jury trials. And what the court has heard is very positive feedback from prospective jurors. The fact that jurors feel engaged earlier in the process and feel like their time is not being wasted. And there has been no no statistical statistically significant change in terms of hung juries. And that's important because one of the big arguments that I heard, you know, leading up to this change, you know, when, when they first announced the rule change last year and then throughout the year is that there would be more hung jurors, hung juries, because without those peremptory strikes, those peremptory challenges, there would be maybe extreme positions that weren't challengeable for cause, but extreme positions on either side, either pro-prosecution or pro-defense that they wouldn't be able to remove from the jury and so they would expect more hung juries. Is that is that kind of one of the arguments that was against the rule change? Yeah, that's correct. That's one of the, the arguments that was often presented in opposition to eliminating peremptories. And so far, there has not been any statistical change. Have we seen whether there's been a change in more acquittals or in more findings of guilt? I, I do not have those statistics or that information. Okay. And I guess with only, you said, what, about 110 criminal cases so far, we're probably still gathering the evidence one way or the other, and maybe that's not enough for a scientific analysis yet. I I would agree with that. But what I think, from a juror perspective, has been very positive is prior to the elimination of peremptories, when a prospective juror came to the courthouse, and, and speaking primarily in Maricopa County, they would report to the jury room and then the panels would be set up and they would be sent to different courtrooms throughout the uh, the courthouse. And say you had 60 prospective jurors coming in for a criminal jury trial, they had not been screened before coming into the courtroom. So typically, say it's jury selection on a Monday, you're typically picking a jury to start on Tuesday. Well, free the rule change, if somebody had... A doctor's appointment on that Tuesday or if somebody had business trip or a vacation plan for later that week they weren't that that information wasn't weeded out prior to them coming into the courtroom and so we were sending a significant number of prospective jurors to courtrooms when they weren't going to serve on the jury because of scheduling hardships and conflicts now when a prospective juror comes to the courtroom and they're going to be sent to a panel to a, to a courtroom, they are provided a written questionnaire before 
going to the courtroom. And that written questionnaire will cover any conflicts and any potential hardships up front. And then, depending on the case, it will have, most likely, have case-specific questions. And so what that system is designed to do is to eliminate the need for people to come to the courtroom when the parties know that they can't participate in the jury because they have vacation planned or a work trip or they have child care or other family commitments that they can't participate in the jury. Or if they are expressing views in the written questionnaire that automatically would disqualify them from jury service, such as a juror who indicates that they would believe everything a police officer says, or a prospective juror that says that they would believe nothing a prospective a police officer says. And so those prospective jurors that both parties and the court know are going to be struck for either hardship or cause outright can then be struck without them ever even having in, come into the courtroom. So we're saving all that prospective juror time where those people don't have to walk all the way to the courtroom to sit down just to raise their hand and say that they're unavailable the rest of that week or that they're going to express views that would disqualify them from jury service on one side or the other for cause. We can eliminate those people outright before they ever set foot in the courtroom. So mm. that way, when we have 40, 50, 60 people in the courtroom, we all know that these people don't have any hardships that are going to, or limitations that are going to prevent them from serving from a time perspective or a financial perspective. And we know generally that they don't have any outright explicit bias that would automatically disqualify them from jury service. And so that was another part of the recommendation from the task force to the Supreme Court was to encourage, not require, but encourage judges and courts to use more written questionnaires to streamline the jury selection process going forward. And that is where the feedback from prospective jurors has been very positive. And I, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, and I just glanced at this a couple days ago, but if I'm not mistaken, that actually is one of the rule changes for 2023 that will be going into effect. Because I think there are some extra rules about courts being required to uh, do more screening beforehand. So I, th I think we'll we'll have to see how that goes, if that was part of the task force recommendations as well. I do think that there are going to be continued changes there. And that I guess that's one question that I have was, did you, were there any other rule changes that you think the task force dealt with that we might continue to see going forward? Or do you, do you think kind of the main couple things were the the juror pay and the peremptory strikes, and now it's it's mostly been put into effect. Or was was there anything else that might be one of those things that needs to get mulled over or discussed for a few more years, but ultimately could become law? I don't think so. I think that the, pay, the juror pay and peremptories were the main things that were going to be impacting justice system here in Arizona. And I do agree with you in terms of continued evolution of the use of questionnaires as we continue to go through this process and learn as we go along i think that continue to see changes and advancements in the ways in which the the questionnaire is used to better streamline the process and as i was saying earlier better screen out prospective jurors from coming to to the courtroom and, and i think that that's going to benefit all parties because in the past if you had a case 
let's just say a DUI case, hypothetically, a hypothetical DUI case, and you had a prospective juror in the panel, and let's say the judge asked the, the jury panel, does anybody feel as though they could not be fair and impartial based on the nature of this case, this being a DUI. And in the past, you had situations where a prospective juror might have raised their hand and said, yes, I can't be fair and impartial on this case because my sibling was killed in a car accident by a drunk driver. Well, clearly, that person should not serve on that jury, obviously. But also, the problem now is they have now made that statement out loud in a it's affecting all the other jurors or right. potential jurors. It has potentially poisoned the entire panel because of that one statement, where now under this new system, that prospective juror would fill that out on a questionnaire. And when the court and the attorneys saw that, everybody would stipulate and agree that this person isn't the right person for this trial. It's not that that person can't be fair and impartial on another case, but clearly they're not a DUI case is not the right type of case for that prospective juror. And so now we've mm -hmm. prevented bringing that person to the courtroom. We've prevented that prospective juror from saying this in front of all the other jurors. So I think that you'll continue to see an evolution of the use of questionnaires. And I think it'll, it'll continue to streamline and improve the process of preventing prospective jurors coming to the courtroom when all the parties know that they're not going to be serving on that jury. No, that makes sense. So it seems like you know, our system for a long time with, you know, this is relatively new. We've been doing juries in Arizona since pre-statehood. And so we had developed a, a pretty lengthy system of ensuring people were struck appropriately. And, but it was always a little bit easier, I think, for judges to be able to say, well, I don't find that there's enough to strike them for cause at this point. But of course you can use one of your peremptory challenges if you want. And I guess one of the, the concerns that it seems like we would all have is that judges will still be a little bit hesitant to strike for cause because that's how they've been trained and how they you know grew up so to speak within the legal field has there been training to the judges or has there been anything put out by the supreme court about ensuring that we're removing all of those people that previously maybe were borderline for cause but we would allow one part or the other just to use their strike on them does that make sense what i'm saying Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's a very valid concern. And I, I do agree with you. I think that those borderline cases in the past, judges were hesitant to strike borderline jurors for cause. And we all knew that when it came to time peremptories, that one side or the other was going to strike a prospective juror. And I, I agree that that is a concern. That was another recommendation with regards to the questionnaire was for tra additional training and for the court's to reevaluate how it approached those borderline for cause strikes. And because I think a lot of times, and, and to, just to go back to another hypothetical, because I think that when it comes to jury trials and jury selection, I think hypotheticals are helpful in sort of illustrating, illustrating the point. You would have a juror who would say something to the effect of, well, can it, does anybody have any issues you know, listening and evaluating it, the testimony of a police officer the same as any other witness. You'd have a prospective juror that would raise their hand and say something to the effect of, well, yes, my brother's a police officer, my son's a police officer, my dad was a police officer, my mom was a police officer, and I think police officers are 
great representatives and great public servants, and I believe that they tell the truth and would not lie. And this one, a criminal defense attorney would be trying to get them to say that they can't be fair and impartial, and they clearly are expressing some views that are very pro-police officer. Pre the elimination of peremptory challenges, a prospective juror would make comments like that, and then the judge would step in and say, well, I'm going to give you an instruction when it comes time to deliberate in this case, and that instruction is going to say that you are to evaluate the testimony of a police officer the same as any other witness. Is that something that you can do? And then sure enough, they'd say, oh, yes, of course. And they'd say, so you can be fair and impartial in this case. Yes. And so in the judge's mind, then that rehabilitation fixed all that was said before by that juror. The recommendation from the task force was that the court should not be forcing jurors, forcing rehabilitation on jurors. Number one, the court and the attorneys, but specifically the court should be asking more open-ended questions to allow the prospective juror to make a more of a narrative response rather than saying, so you can be fair and impartial, say something to the effect of you're being told to evaluate a police officer's testimony the same as any other witness. What do you think about that? And by asking it in terms of an open-ended question, you're getting statistically and psychologists presented to us that you're getting more honest and more complete answers. Because I think when most prospective jurors come into the courtroom, they're intimidated by their surroundings and intimidated by the judge. And I think it's just human nature when a judge says, well, you can be fair and impartial, right? To say yes, because I think most people in their heart of hearts believe that they can be fair and impartial, number one. And number two, they want to tell the judge that as well. They don't want to be argumentative or disagreeable with the judge. And so when the judge asks those direct yes or no rehabilitation questions, more often than not, jurors would indicate that, they, yes, they could be fair and impartial, even though everything they said before then indicates that, no, they actually can't be fair and impartial. And so courts have received training on this, judges have received training on this. It's with the, the hope that the court does not rehabilitate jurors with yes or no questions, rather makes open-ended questions, number one. And also, the court is told that when evaluating a four-cause strike, it needs to con the court needs to consider the totality of the prospective juror's statements, all everything that that prospective juror said, not just at the end when they said, yes, they can be unfair and impartial. Because if somebody clearly said that they believe everything a police officer says, or they believe nothing a police officer says, that can't be just remedied by a yes or no question later on. And so the court, the rules indicate that the court needs to take into consideration the totality of what a prospective juror says when deciding a four-cause strike. Additionally, in Arizona, the burden of proof is on the moving party by a preponderance of the evidence to show that a prospective juror cannot be fair and impartial, which is a relatively low standard in our legal system. Other How state, does that compare to other states? Other states have a much higher burden. Many other states have the burden on the moving party by clear and convincing evidence, which is a much really? more stringent, much more difficult burden to meet in terms of showing that a prospective juror cannot be fair and impartial. So in Arizona, the moving party only needs to show by a preponderance of the evidence. Another concern I've heard several people bring up, kind of related to, to some of the things you're talking about or your hypotheticals, is it seems like a lot of the questions that we've developed over the course of you know the jury trials and jury selection that we've done seems to be focused on avoiding bias in favor of the state. And of course, 
most of what we do in the criminal justice system is ensuring that you know the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and protecting his or her rights and that's how it should be but is there any concern that most of these questions that we have you know your example several times has been you know what do you think about a police officer every the practice i think would agree that the vast majority of the time you lose this the state would lose more of their quote unquote you know favorable jurors to that question than defense because you would inevitably get at least several and sometimes several dozen people that would raise their hand saying that they would believe a police officer more and so it seems like we often a lot of the questions we've developed so far have kind of been geared in that direction to make sure that nobody has you know a proclivity to find guilty you know asking the question you know just because he's been charged with a crime does does anybody here think that make makes him more or less likely to be guilty a lot of the questions seem to lean in that direction so do you think if we're if we're going to remove strikes and not strikes for cause preemptory challenges do we need to update some of those questions to ensure that we're getting a more balanced view from possible concerns in either direction well i, I think that and it would just be anecdotal in in my career in the jury trials that i've done which is i've done more than 50 jury trials and i would say that more often than not defense would be making motions for cause strikes i would think that defense has made more motions for cause strikes than i have as a prosecutor but i think it's important to to remember that questionnaire is a joint questionnaire that both parties both attorneys are putting together so any questions or any concerns that the state or the prosecution is trying to elicit or any concerns or potential biases that the state is trying to elicit, those can be fleshed out in the questionnaire as well as open voir dire. So additionally, in the recommendations and in the rule changes with regards to questionnaires and then also for cause strikes, there's also requirement that the courts are allowing prospective jurors or excuse me um prospective attorneys to do oral voir dire of the panel as well and with regards to the oral voir dire of the panel the court is not allowed to set inflexible time limits on either attorney so either attorney whether it's the defense attorney or the prosecutor can ask questions to the entire panel to try to elicit or find any biased jurors to make for cause strikes so I, I think that those opportunities still exist for the state to include any questions that the state wants in the questionnaire as well as oral voir dire to try to find any jurors that can't be fair and impartial from the state's perspective as well yeah i, I mean I, I think that most of the prosecutors i know would agree that the opportunity exists i guess the concerns that i've heard more relate to how we've developed over time our system it seems like you just said you know most of four cause strikes comes from the defense bar and the prosecution bar seemed to rely more heavily on their preemptory challenges in large part because again i think the questions seem to be more geared towards removing bias against the defendant and so do you think we're just going to have to both sides you know all everybody involved in the criminal justice system, do you think we're just going to have to get better some of those questionnaires, like you're saying, and, and finding some questions that will ensure that we're getting the four cause strikes from both sides and not just kind of the state-friendly focused potential jurors? Yeah, I would agree with that. All right. Well, I mean, it'll be interesting to see over the next few years 
some of these changes. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we're the first state in the in the country to to make a change like this, right? We are, and it's pretty remarkable to be in that position and to be at the forefront of what I consider to be a significant change in the way in which the justice system is administered in the state. Now, we're not, Arizona is definitely the first state to do this, but other countries have. The United Kingdom had already eliminated peremptory challenges, and Canada as well had already eliminated peremptory challenges. Before really? How long, ago, how long ago did they do that? Canada, I believe, was 2019, if I remember right, and the United Kingdom was back before the year 2000. I don't remember the exact year, but the United Kingdom eliminated them a significant time ago. Okay. And obviously, the United Kingdom, United States, and Canada all have justice systems based on the old English common law system. Yeah. Well, yeah, it'll just be interesting to see, you know, A, I'm, I'm sure we'll start getting more statistics going forward and, and to see whether some of these changes, you know, do we find more guilty verdicts, more, more not guilty verdicts? Are we finding more hung juries? Or are there just going to be changes like we've talked about that there's definitely going to need to be changes going forward. And so what are some of those going to be? Of course, if any of you have ideas on what those changes might be, you, you can you know share that on Twitter or on our Facebook page. Matt? So one of the points I'd like to make before we, yeah. before we wrap this up is that the change in the elimination of peremptories and, and to me, one of the strongest arguments for eliminating peremptories, and it's something that I think a lot of practitioners, especially in Maricopa County, wouldn't consider is how the old system affected rural counties and smaller jurisdictions as well. So in the past, if you had either an eight or a 12 person jury, let's just say it was an eight person jury in Arizona, which is any criminal case where the potential sentence is less than 30 years. And so you have eight jurors in there and you have two alternates. So you're going to seat 10 people on the jury. Well, prior to the elimination of peremptories, each side would get six strikes on that case. So the attorneys would be striking and basically wasting 12 prospective jurors and only seating 10. So we were, before this change, we were striking more jurors than we were actually using for these cases. Mm-hmm. And these are jurors that had gone through the voir dire process that the court and the attorneys had passed the panel for cause and said that these people in our estimation can be fair and impartial jurors. And then we were just striking them without telling them, without explaining to them, without giving them any explanation to why they were being kicked off the jury. In Maricopa County, that doesn't create a problem because we have five, six million people here. So there are plenty of prospective jurors, but in these smaller counties where the population is a lot less, they have a hard time getting a large enough panel for some of their trials to begin with. Depending on how the how the rules are set up in that county, if a prospective juror gets struck with a peremptory pre the change, they could not then be used again for a certain amount of time. And that created a, a significant problem and burden on those counties in just coming up with enough prospective jurors for these trials. And so from that standpoint, I think it's going to be very helpful for rural counties and less taxing on their resources and the the people in terms of their participation on the jury. Not to mention the pool we'll need to bring in, whether in Maricopa County or otherwise, or in rural counties, will be much smaller. So we'll be requiring fewer people to come in. And now that we're going to be paying them up to three hundred dollars a day, that can be you know save some money as well. Absolutely, and and you're you're right. You you have to summon less people. You have to distribute disrupt less people's lives. They have to, rather than having to drive downtown and come to the courthouse just to get struck for 
cost or hardship. Now we're, we're going to be summonizing less people and putting that time on less people. So I think that that's a, that's a positive as well. And I think one of the things that, one of the final comments that I'd like to, to leave everybody with to consider is this change, as I said earlier, it's exciting to be in the forefront of this change. And I think it allow, it gives all of us attorneys an opportunity to sort of change the prism through which we view jury selection and jury trial, because under the peremptory system, the jury selection process was adversarial. You were in there trying to angle to strike potential jurors for either cause or to weed out the people that you wanted to use your peremptories on to try to gain a tactical advantage. And I think that both sides were doing this across the board, prosecution, defense, civil practitioners as well, because the system as it was designed was adversarial. You were trying to pick the best jury for your side. And that had given rise to jury consultants and jury selection experts. And I put experts in quotation because people think that they know, but you don't truly know what a person's thinking or, or feeling. And then the system, when it was just oral voir dire as well, was predicated on a belief that these people are telling the truth to begin with or participating at all. But you mean to tell me that it's not like the TV show? I, I can't remember the name of it now, where they, the experts knew exactly what somebody was going to do? Exactly. Right. And unfortunately, those experts are the only ones that thought it was like the TV show. <laughs> right. And and so you had this adversarial jury selection process. I think that this change in the law, it gives us a great opportunity to change the way us attorneys view jury selection and rather than making it adversarial in terms of trying to angle and pick the best jury for your case, we can come together, both attorneys and the court, and pick the best jury for the justice system as a whole and make the system and put the system and the sense of justice and fairness first rather than what one's adversarial position is. And so I, I think that this is an opportunity for that. And it's um it's something that I hope that people consider. Thank you. Well, it's definitely law here in Arizona. So I, I hope you're right. I, uh, I have to admit, I might take a slightly more skeptical view of, of how much it will change the adversarial nature of it, because I think they'll, we'll just, do, maybe it might increase the adversarial nature as now the debate goes to striking for cause as opposed to before, where we could just sit back and wait until we could use our peremptory. But I hope you're right. I, I think that for the most part, criminal practitioners here in Arizona, I, I think we, for the most part, we're a very professional group and we largely get along. And I, I think it would be great if we could kind of join together and make it less adversarial. So I, I hope you're right. And it will be interesting to follow the changes and maybe we'll have to do a, a follow-up episode here in a year or, year or so from now and we hopefully have a little bit more data to determine what these things have done. But until then, thanks for coming on, Matt, and excited to see how things go. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today on Guilty as Charged. Please subscribe to our podcast to get more great discussion about law and crimes specific to Arizona and also get access to Arizona Supreme Court audio. You can find Jake on Twitter at JacobBrownAZ. 